0: Welcome to this Friday afternoon. If you're on the East Coast, still Friday morning on the West Coast. Today, we're gonna to be recapping the conversations we've been having about integrators of the future. We had very interesting conversations with four people in our industry. Those were Sam Russum, Travis Cox, Addison Wiggy, and Jason Hamlin. I probably butchered that last name. I apologize to Addison doing that but in any case the goal today is going to be to have a conversation and recap a little bit of what we learned i think what were the key takeaways for both dave and i but ultimately also give our own thoughts and ideas when it comes to integrators of the future because we've had a lot of experience in the space and i think it's very important for us to be able to chime in on some of those conversations that being said dave if we want to kick this off I just want to welcome back everyone to episode 121 of the Manufacturing Hub. Today, we are concluding the conversation on integrators of the future. So if you are new to this channel, welcome. If you have any questions, make sure to leave them in the comment section on LinkedIn or on YouTube. And if you're coming back, welcome back. Always excited to see you back in the Manufacturing Hub if you have anything to add to the conversation or ask us feel free to do so as well without any further delay dave first conversation we had was with sam from grantech i think it was a very interesting and i want to say very appropriate conversation for him to introduce us into the theme which ultimately to paint you a picture so grantech is a fairly large systems integrator that does work across a couple of verticals but we've talked primarily on food and beverage, as well as the pharma side. I know that Sam has a lot of experience in both of those verticals, but more importantly, again, they do work across the US and Canada. So in North America, what were your thoughts based on that conversation?
1: Yeah, I thought, I think every time we have conversations with folks from Grantec, Tech, it's interesting. I think Sam especially highlights lots of those. It is when you become a larger systems integrator, there are lots of opportunities to grow there are lots of opportunities to stay within the same organization and be able to go from, Hey, I'm a technical person to I'm a project manager, to I'm a salesperson, to I'm running the, these newer types of divisions. And so I would say, Sam, the conversation we had, and then Jeff Winter back when Jeff was working for Grant Tech, when he was on the show, I think any, all of these are very interesting conversations as to the size of the organization and the opportunities that a company can have. I feel like when you get to the size of multiple hundreds of people, then it very much becomes the conversation of, hey, this is not just the systems integration company that I'm going to go learn my tradecraft from, but it is very potentially an organization that I could go grow with and spend my entire career.
0: Let me maybe weave in a question that I did want to discuss, and that is whether you're expecting, I want to see in the next five to 10 years, to see more smaller firms emerging versus a consolidation of firms. And I want to expand that a little bit because I think in my circles, I see a little bit of both and I have some thoughts on the question. But ultimately, do you see smaller groups of, let's say, one to five people forming versus a larger integrator just buying out that talent, whether through an acquisition or just simply just taking over a lot of that business. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think that over the last, I don't know, probably 10 or so years and maybe longer because I have because the last 10 or so years is what I've been paying attention to is historically a systems integration firm gets started because a person lives in a particular area and there is a need They may have come from industry somewhere. They may have come from another systems integration firm. And it becomes the, hey, I can go do this better. I don't want to work with the person that I'm working with. Or I think I can go make a bunch more money going out and doing it myself. So they go put out their own shingle. And they go do some contract work and maybe at some point they go hire some people on. And then maybe you get to that, I don't know, we'll call it a five person firm, but still a fairly small systems integration firm. And then at that point, it becomes the conversation of, hey, do I have any senior people who are perhaps just going to go put out their own shingle because they think that they can go make more money? From my experience, that is where I see lots of systems integrators having started over and over again. We've mm-hmm. certainly seen a number of integrators, especially Grantech with Sam like we were talking about and Vertech Addison. They are both large firms. They've got a bunch of different kind of main offices. And so those guys have grown up, grown out from the, hey, we're going to be a small group and we're going to go figure out how that we can go make this work. Having said that, I think it's really difficult to go buy a five person systems integration firm, Vlad. And I think it's really difficult because the valuation of a business is our physical assets of which most of those firms have substantially nothing, right? We we almost certainly don't own a building. We might own some hardware, probably most of those companies less hardware than what is currently sitting behind you. And then from that point, it becomes the conversation. So what is the value of what we have? If we've got reoccurring annual contracts, then yes, there, there is some intrinsic value in that. There is some intrinsic value in the business relationships. There's some intrinsic value in the people and that currently work for you and their experiences. But sometimes it's difficult to go ahead and keep those if you're transitioning from one ownership firm to another. So I think that unless someone had maybe a lot more money than anyone else, we're probably not going to go see those firms get bought up because even if we did, we might have three or four of those people come and go set up their own shingles and then go be competing against us in the exact same businesses and the exact same business entities. So I don't, I guess my expectation for the next three to five years is not, we are going to go have a mass consolidation. I think, and I have posted about this recently, is I think that we're going to have more groups who specialize on a couple of very particular things, right? I think you're going to say, hey, this is the type of work that I do. I'm happy to go work with a bunch of other groups, but this is the type of work that I go do. I my goal is to be the best person in the industry on process historians or my goal is to be the best person in the industry focused on cloud hosted architecture or hosted on on any of these other things. And so I think we're going to find people specialize more and more. And I think we're going to see groups if we want to call them co-ops, if we want to call them strategic partnerships come together of smaller people who are very good at what they do in order to be able to go after these larger projects.
0: Yeah. And I guess, look, I agree with most of the points. I guess I'm also interested in seeing how the smaller integrators are able to, I want to say like when you're a one to five person systems integrator, typically you have very good technical expertise, right? You're not going to, I want to say, hang your own shingle unless you do realize you have the expertise that is in demand. But I think the... Not the misconception, but I wanna say the difficult challenge there is finding those clients. And I think unless you have a really good customer base that you can tap into immediately upon, let's say, leaving the previous workplace, it becomes a challenge. And I would say sometimes an underestimation of the process of continuing to find that work. So I guess in my mind, the smaller systems integrator, I wanna say the lone wolves that are extremely technical, are going to, I think, access more and more of the contracts that larger integrators simply cannot either fulfill or maybe they have a means to incorporate some of that other technical expertise that they don't have. So I think that we're going to see less, let's say consolidation, but more, I think this like on a contract basis, if I'm very large, like Grand Tech, and I don't have a very specific skill set, I'm going to bring in those smaller groups. So as you said, I think it's going to be cool, but I really think it's going to be more it's going to be less so with just everybody of equal size. It's going to be larger integrators that will bring in some of these smaller groups in a way that, again, is profitable, I think, on both sides. I, that's what I'm expecting to see in five to 10 years.
1: OK, then let me ask you a theoretical follow up question based upon that, Vlad at what point does a systems integrator lose the the technical value At, at what point do they lose the special thing that caused them to go start out and be start out hang out out their own shingle and then find opportunities to grow is there a point in which a company is going to lose the special sauce that made them the company that they are
0: I would say it's less losing the special sauce. I think what naturally happens is, like I said, there's a very big hurdle in finding customers, especially early on, right? And so as that, I wanna say flywheel accelerates, they will find themselves in a position where they're able to find more work, but ultimately the customers are asking them like, hey, I would like to integrate instead of just that one specific skill that they're really good at, I now want to integrate these three other things. They very quickly, I think, realize that size. And I guess to answer that directly, 30 to 50 people, I think like maybe that's where the number is for me. But that what starts to happen is, like I said, they'll notice that they have, I want to say gaps, right? Like I'll call it, I'll call it that of certain technical capabilities. And that's where instead of trying to hire people in that know that internally they will simply subcontract some of those skill sets to other groups right so i think to maybe summarize that they go from just being very good at the technical skill set to realizing now they've built really solid relationships through those skill sets and they're talking to an end user that wants more than what they initially had and there's like a shift right like now they're becoming this like sales and sort of customer relationships machine on the technical side rather than being a purely highly technical implementation shop. So that's what I'm noticing more and more.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And I think the shift of, I think the shift of, we are going to win projects based upon the work to we're going to win projects based upon our sales and marketing schema is a very interesting shift that I think lots of groups don't have, ha, ha, I think lots of groups do not successfully make it to that next level of we're the technical people and make it to the we are the technical people and we've got a sales team who may or may not be ourselves who go out and can go sell these projects and win projects comparative to everyone else. I would
0: also make the comment that many systems integrators, including the small ones, and I want to say somewhat unsuccessfully, try to pivot from selling services to selling a product. And I can name a couple of examples, but ultimately it's the goal is to try and reapply something you've done at a customer to then take that and sell that, I want to say like bundle package, whether it is pure hardware or hardware and software to other customers. And what I think happens is that it is a very difficult challenge. I had actually spoken to a couple of people who went through that. And I think we spoke to Shane Dittrich. I don't remember the exact episode. And they've done that at House of Robotic, House of Design with a robotics. House of Robotics. I believe could be House of Robotics. I think it was House of Design. But in any case, I think the okay. that is a very difficult task. And I think that also happens successfully at that whole like 30, 50 employee market. And again, that's what I've seen. And that's my opinion. For some, it happens much later. For some, it could happen earlier. But I think that mm-hmm. shift also is extremely pivotal in how they, I want to say, handle business with the end users. And I would say it's less so that they make the shift. Like I said, it's more so that Mm -hmm. the end users now trust them based on the technical capability. And again, drawing on my experience, what usually happens if you're a one to five person shop, it's relatively easy to get on a small support project, right? So for example, if you're at a plan that's requiring some commissioning projects, you're going to almost take a flyer, I want to say on a technical group that seems credible to come in and help you with startup support, right? If we're bringing in new manufacturing lines, new equipment, you're going to almost trial that person and see what they're capable of as they prove themselves to you, you'll be a lot more lenient to bringing them into larger projects. But like I said, what happens on their side is that as demand increases, I think it's very difficult and we'll get into the conversation in a few minutes to bring in other experts that sort of fill in the gaps that you don't have. I I think that's a huge challenge for in many technical areas, right? Because the demand is there, but to manage that growth, I think is not as simple. But in any case, I want to move us a little bit further, Dave, unless you have some other thoughts on that point.
1: I think Travis, our next guest, had, had some good comments on the product versus service. But before we get there, Jay, Jay Boychuk in the comments has got a, an interesting comment that I don't think that we necessarily de- defined or described through any sure. of our guests. He wants to know, how do we define an integrator to start with? CSIA just called this out and found many types, IT specific, machine builders, traditional controls, programming, integrators, etc. And because I read the question, I will go take the first, uh, first whack at this, Jay. I guess so in, in my mind, I consider basically all of the things that that we are just describing as an integrator, right? I typically pull out machine builders. I'm not saying that they're not a subtype of integrator, but I think that if you're building a bunch of the physical product, like the machines or the lines, you are more of a builder or an OEM as opposed to an integrator whose job is to go, in my mind, take a disparate group of services and solutions and either go build a new technology stack encompassing them or maybe not encompassing them. I've heard many industries consider themselves an integrator especially on the IT side like especially on the ERP side there are lots of quote unquote like ERP integrators who do a lot of similar work going and customizing code and solutions and things like that to go specifically fit the end user and maybe on the other side, going and modifying what the end user is doing. So it comes closer to industry best practices, and you don't have to spend the money on modifying the code as, as it has currently been built and as it generally works for hundreds or thousands of other organizations. So I would, in, in my mind, say kind of anyone that takes more than one product, so two or more products and goes and melds them with existing machinery, goes and melds them with existing items at a facility is, that is generally how I would describe an integrator. Vlad, do you have thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, I think you've said it pretty well. I would only add like a couple of comments. I guess like for me, I always talk in the context of manufacturing automation, right? So as you've mentioned that an ERP integrator, but to me it would be the caveat, it would have to be a link between let's say your plant floor and the ERP system, if they're purely coming in Mm -hmm. and setting up an ERP for let's say an e-commerce platform, then I would not, let's say they are in the traditional sense, unintegrated. but I wouldn't be talking about them in let's say the conversations that me and you are having on, on manufacturing hub. But in, in any case, I think you've said it really well where it's meshing multiple systems together. I think whether it is a brownfield or a greenfield application, the understanding is that the integrator is the one that creates the links between machinery. It could be on the mechanical side, it could be on the electrical side, it could be programming, right? But ultimately they provide all of those services. And I think you've also mentioned really well machine builders. I think that a machine builder could be an integrator if they also come into the factory to install and program the links between that machine and the rest of the line, but if they purely creating a machine that then they hand off to whomever, they're not necessarily an integrator in in the way that we are discussing it on the show. But I, I think that's a really good question. I think we've asked some of our guests that same question and I think we've gotten fairly similar responses, but yes, I'm glad it gets brought up. But again, I think it's it's a very wide range, right? Like I think that even saying someone who programs PLCs is an integrator that's still a world apart from a machine builder that comes in and puts in their machine. So there are nuances, and I agree that it is a really good question. There's another question in the chat that is very relevant. I want to get into that in a moment. So the question is, what is the set of skills which a professional integrator should have? I'm going to table that for just a couple of minutes because I do want to Move us along a little bit so we can, let's touch on the next guest that we have, which was Travis Cox from Inductive Automation. And I want to really briefly discuss that before we, like I said, answer this question. So Travis comes with a very interesting background. So Inductive Automation, if you didn't catch that conversation, started off as a systems integrator company early on. The founder was a systems integrator, right? And I forgot the exact industry that he was working in but ultimately split off and decided to start his own company and build out the product that was used, I think, by very few companies early on, but then got bundled and packaged as a standalone solution, right? So the transformation that we talked about just a few moments ago was exactly what happened at inductive, right? And so I think Mm -hmm. that the perspective from Travis was, slightly different than from a traditional systems integrator in the sense that now they partner with systems integrator that allow or that are provided with the tools that they create and ultimately integrate their product into the end users environment and i think that i want to say distinction is important but ultimately like that perspective is extremely important because i think the integrators of the future will work a lot closer with OEMs, with the software developers, and sort of other parties than they are today. And again, I'm not going to mention many platforms, but I would say that they can certainly take a page in Inductive Automation's book and how they've set up those partnerships. I've personally gone through their trainings, and I think it's very different from what with other companies. What are your thoughts, Dave?
1: Yeah, no, I thought that it was, it was an interesting conversation of... You find a need, you go solve the need, and then as you're going to solve your need, you realize that the problem that you have solved might be more valuable and more useful than the integration work that, that you've been doing. And so I think it's a it was a very interesting conversation. I think it was interesting to get Travis's perspective on that. And I think to his point, I think that there are, and especially his leadership at Inductive's background being kind of technologists and technologists on the coding side, I think that there will only continue to be more opportunities in order to go build new, better tools, in order to go leverage different types of databases, in order to tie disparate pieces of systems and information together. Because as as nice as it would be of saying, hey, we're going to go in and completely rebuild everything from scratch, I think it becomes the conversation of I think it becomes the conversation of how can we go solve our problems and to, to your earlier point, Vlad, of at some point do the problems that we're solving ourselves do that does that become more valuable to turn into a product than the integration work that we are doing? I think it is difficult for I think specializing is important when it comes to integration services, but beyond specializing if you're actually going to go sell a product that is a very different conversation than going and providing a service based upon a very repeatable product that you've done dozens or hundreds of times before hmm.
0: i would definitely agree and i think that's a good segue maybe to answer that question and it's not necessarily product versus service but more what are the skill sets which an integrator should have in in your opinion and i also have an opinion dave but i'll let you Take a stab at this first.
1: I appreciate that, Vlad. So to, to answer Nader's question, in my opinion, I don't think there's one particular skill set that an integrator should have. To go back to Jay's question of how do you define an integrator? I think there are lots of different types of integrators. I, I think that we there are integrators that we see who are really good on PLCs or they build HMI screens all of the time. I think we've certainly talked to other folks like Addison that we'll talk about in just a moment. Addison spends most of his time on on MES layers and the, the skills that he needs to be successful on the MES layer and probably do some data analytics on top of that is very different than someone who's going to go work at a factory, doing machine startup, going and doing networking, going and doing kind of a bunch of other things. So I would say, and it may feel like a bit of a cop-out Nader, and it is, that is not my hope of being a bit of a cop-out, but it really depends upon what you want to do and beyond what you want to do. It might depend upon what sort of opportunities you have to, to the previous point in my experience, An integration firm starts based upon someone who is technically competent and probably has a couple of customers asking them to go do this thing, maybe cheaper, maybe faster, maybe better, or maybe just doing the thing in general. And so that is where the first kind of couple of customers come based upon the skill sets that you have. But it is not just based upon those skill sets that you have. It is the opportunity of how can we go through the process of continuing to upskill, continuing to find things that are interesting for you. So very much based upon the situation.
0: If I can add to that, Dave, I think that my perspective is maybe a little bit different. And I think that we'll have a conversation about like the end user's perspective and what's optimal for them and how to select the systems integrator, which I think will tie into this question really nicely. But for me, if I'm the end user and if I'm evaluating and I wanna say that this question is probably asked from a perspective of a smaller systems integrator, right? So I'm assuming that this is maybe a lot, like one to three people shop, then I think that the skills I'm looking at should be extremely narrow. And what I mean by that is if I have a need, so I have, let's say a factory that is running on a certain platform and I'm looking to commission new equipment and I'm evaluating certain systems integrators, then my understanding that the person coming in with a very narrow skill set is going to be, I want to say, 10 times better than someone who can solve problems across the board, right? And I'll give a, I want to say like a somewhat of a specific example. So if I'm looking for commissioning, let's call it HMI systems, then I would prefer someone who has, let's say, HMIs on, let's say, Rockwell for Factory Talk View, that is, let's say, as close as possible to my version versus someone who will list. And again, this could be on, on a skill set on their website, or on their resume. Someone that lists, I can do PLCs, I can do HMIs, I can do SCADA systems, MES, ERP, everything under the sun. Because again, the more time you spend perfecting a narrow skill set, my understanding would be that the better you're going to be suited for that specific need. Now, of course, again there's caveats. If you're a larger systems integrator, then you should be able to meet the needs of an advisor, right? If I'm a manufacturer that's trying to figure out what needs to be done, then I will generally want a generalist to be able to come in and assess multiple areas. So anyways, I think we'll dive into that a little bit more, but I think that if for a small systems integrator, my desire as an end user would be a narrow skill set, whatever that may be.
1: Absolutely. I and I would say I was answering that question more along the line of a particular person looking to go into systems integration as opposed to a company. I think that you have to go find, a, there are different ways that one would project the company and the hopefully more complementary and broader skill set of the company versus a particular person. We'll go ahead Nader's got a follow-up comment in there to be more specific. Nowadays, we have so many upgrading projects to integrate with the fourth industry in industry technology. I would take to that point, I think it really depends upon the needs and the desires that the area that you're working in, right? So if you've got a bunch of folks who are using all Siemens or using all Rockwell or using all something else. That is where I think most of us would suggest going to learn right become as as skillful as you can on the platforms that your customers and your potential customers are looking for and then go ahead and branch out from that point to have a better idea of what everyone in the industry what everyone in the industry is looking for. But to go ahead and bring it back, I think we had a really interesting conversation with Travis on episode 118 and that getting the perspective of branching product to service, I feel like it was very interesting. One other item I'd like to highlight on is the, what I imagine was a painstaking behind the scenes decision of saying, hey, we're no longer be going, going to be integrators. We are going to become this product company because this is where the future lies. And I think that is, that is a very important conversation that at some point you can, At some point you can start off as one thing and then you can go transition to something else. I think that that is one of the beauties of systems integration. That is one of the beauties of our industry is that you can be something today, but you can go transition and go build something and be a different group, a different company, five, 10 years from now.
0: And I would make a note, maybe to your point of what Nader has followed up with is i think that the umbrella term of industry 4.0 just encompasses so many different aspects that ultimately you should be knowledgeable to some extent like broadly with all of them but you should probably be specializing with one right a general understanding is good but i would doubt that a single person which again maybe it's five people within a team would be ex- like the expert on all of those topics so you probably should be picking one and positioning yourself as the expert in that specific domain versus trying to, I want to say, encompass all of those sets. and which ones specifically to his original question, I think any of them work, right? I think there's demand in data, there's demand in networks, there's demand in PLCs, HMIs, robotics. So I don't think it's as critical on, and again, like, obviously I'm speaking in generalities, maybe in certain industries, one is more in demand than another. But I would say that it's not as critical as which one you pick versus the fact that you specialize in one and have a general broad understanding of others instead of trying to master all of that. And as, as Greg pointed out, becoming a jack of all trades, but master of none. And again, that's my thought on it.
1: Greg says master of one. Master
0: of one. Oh, okay. 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 Yes. Good. And yes. that's exactly no, what it is. I, I, in that case, like that's exactly what I'm trying to describe. So master of one, I think that's extremely critical, but which one specifically, I think you're going to have to do a little bit more digging with the vertical and the end users.
1: Absolutely. I would say if I may, I think that from my perspective, the top two skills that someone could bring to systems integration or or most of these industrial conversations are one, helping to understand what the client actually means i feel like most conversations that that i go through we might say industry 4.0 we might say digital transformation we might use something else but they almost exclusively mean different things to different groups so going and be able to actually get to that root of what does this actually mean is exceptionally important. And beyond that, I would say the biggest skill that I would look for from someone on the systems integration side is the ability to go troubleshoot problems and then follow some sort of logical path in order to go figure out what the problem is and then hopefully get to that root cause of the problem and actually solve it as opposed to, to band-aiding what that problem becomes. I think both of those skills are severely underrepresented in, in our industry in general and, uh, and as a whole yeah, perfect. So I'd like to take that opportunity to transition into the Addison conversation. So we've alluded to it earlier. Addison came on. Addison works for Vertec, which is another large systems integration firm. Yeah, they are another fairly large systems integration firm, and he focuses mostly on the mes layer. And that is something that that Vlad and I have both spent some time working Uh, on and i thought that this was an interesting conversation because before that we were talking about different verticals with sam being the food and beverage and the life science with travis of the products versus services what were you what was what is your take vlad on specializing something like an mes style layer as opposed to specializing in a vertical
0: yeah so i really liked the conversation we had with addison for a number of reasons right so he actually had a time where he spent I guess he spent integrating PLC and HMI systems. So I think that he has a deeper understanding of what that looks like than someone who just purely comes in at SCADA MES. So I think that he certainly appreciates that layer a lot more than, like I said, than someone with a very traditional like software background that comes into it. But I guess my perspective is, again, there's demand for all of them. I certainly see a growing demand for data acquisition and I want to say like leveraging the instrumentation that you already have or are trying to augment in order to drive business decisions. So I certainly understand why he chose SCADA and MES because I think those systems are becoming more critical. I would also say that I, again, in my opinion, there is more I want to say different complexity, but there is an increased complexity in how those systems are deployed because I think they not only deal with the data that you need to understand at the plant floor, but they also need to deal with IT systems, right? Once you start breaching that gap, it becomes increasingly more complex and the conversations start to become not necessarily more political, but just different than if you're, let's say a pure... PLC and HMI programmer, but also because they are now starting to deal with that either cloud or server layer. So I think there's quite a bit more, or I guess, again, different, but more knowledge, at least in my mind, involved in getting there. So the differentiation is better, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say by that is someone who knows SCADA and MES extremely well, I think there's tons of opportunities right now in our industry. And I think that those opportunities are going to continue to grow. I would like to weave in a question that i did want to discuss is and we had i think this question with most of our guests and i would like to hear from our audience as well so if you have a comment on this make sure to write that up but the comment of what is the ideal skill set for someone coming into the integration whether that is a mechanical or process engineer that is looking to understand how programming works and I want to say it has a deeper understanding of the systems than then learns programming versus someone on the software side that could come in and probably design the nicest HMIs out there who can come in and understand user experience a lot more who can understand the flow of data better and then learn the process in order to make that happen what are your thoughts on those two I want to say fairly far apart skill sets Dave
1: so, I guess the question becomes Vlad, are we answering this question from the perspective of a potential employer, or are we answering this question from the perspective of if we were to go start over and do it all again, which path would we go take?
0: I would say a potential systems integration employer. So, I'm let me give you a better scenario. I don't know. I'm a systems integrator of, let's say, 50 people. We have people across the stack, right? So we're able to come in and retrofit systems. We're able to program controls. We're able to integrate new machinery. We also have some SCADA and MES capability, potentially ERP. We're trying to find people that would take, I want to say, like the least amount of time to bring up to speed, but also that can complement our skill sets the most. Who would you go after in that scenario?
1: So in in the past, when I was this person looking to go build up a SCADA MES practice on on that side, I had a bunch of conversations with a number of different people, historically, it was, uh, let's go find someone with a software engineering background who understands how to code because I can go teach them what a manufacturing process looks like, right? So on, on the MES SCADA side. We are drawing things that hopefully someone on the plant floor can go tell us what they look like for an HMI or for a SCADA. We're drawing out the process. Once we've drawn out the process, we just have to go map some tags. We've got to go map some other items in order to go visualize the data and go build the process flow. And so on that side, I think it is fairly easy to go get someone with a software engineering background up and running if our goal is we just want to go pump out more and more screens and then we want to go contextualize the data and put some information and we want to go put some information on there i would say from the perspective of if we are going to if we are going to go look at people who are doing more than just the coding side i probably would prefer someone who has a hands-on skill set has been at the facilities in the past and has an interest in learning the technology stack that we're doing, right? If someone has the hands on skill set, typically would have a fairly, hopefully would have a fairly good idea of what troubleshooting is going to look like from a machinery standpoint and has gone through the, has gone through the process of learning how to code, et cetera, then, then I would go ahead and take a look at that. So I think it really depends upon where someone is. But I think that the sweet spot is less of a, what does the person's degree or non-degree program look like? And it's more of a, do they have some blend of, do they have some blend of where they have enough hands-on experience and also can fulfill the technical requirements we have. And as Kruno here in the comments is saying that they would look for employees who have the culture fit over the skills. And I think culture fit over the skills is certainly really important and as as we had mentioned earlier on as a systems integration company grows especially from a couple of people up to 50-ish people as is the example now that company it's a different company right it's a different company at two or five people than it is at 20 people which is different at 50 people and then certainly by the time you're at somewhere between that 75 and 100 person it as much as people probably don't want to admit it's not nearly the same company As it was when you went and started out in the, in the basement or off the back of the truck, Vlad, what are your thoughts? Is there an ideal skill set for someone who wants to get into this industry?
0: Yeah, look, I've wrestled with that question multiple times, especially when I was interviewing different candidates, I would say that coming, coming in as someone who's on the lower stack of that pyramid. So more on like up to the SCADA system. I think that for me, the most important criteria really was can this person be trusted to be safe, right? And what I mean by that is because I think you can train someone who has a general understanding of manufacturing operations and a general software understanding any of these skills, right? Whether they come from software, whether they come from electrical background or technician. But what is very difficult to teach, at least like for me and a very... I want to say like stressful moment is whether or not I can let that person loose in the manufacturing environment, right? Because I think not only the physical safety, right? So obviously you can explain to them that you should not be approaching a robot, but more importantly on the electrical side, because again, even as an engineer or programmer, a lot of times you need to open the panel. You need to troubleshoot what's going on. You need to be able to figure out why, the certain signal is not coming into your SCADA system. And so if I can trust them to be safe with the equipment that we're working with, and I, they can demonstrate that in the interview, I would be fairly confident in being able to fill in the rest of the gap. But I think that I also, how to say it, I don't always subscribe to the whole, like the culture fit is above all else. I think that a lot of these disciplines are fairly difficult to learn and master. So I think you also need to recognize the learning curve of someone who has, let's say, never been on the manufacturing floor. They might be the greatest person from a personality standpoint, but it still takes quite a bit of effort to understand what's going on. And I think a typical learning curve that I've seen is at least a year, right? So it's six months to a year Mm -hmm. for you to start contributing in a meaningful way to an organization. And I believe there's been studies on that, I think. software it's a little bit less than that i think it's three months to six months but i guess what i'm trying to say is if you have the right skill set that learning curve will be a lot less so you should be considering skills
1: i think that if someone doesn't have industry experience i think a year would be on the short side many times i've seen a couple of years to go actually understand what's happening and be able to contribute and potentially run their own projects without someone holding their hands. I think it really depends upon industry. And I would say on the culture fit, I think it is important not to hire people that don't fit within your culture, no matter how well their technical requirements are. I think there, there are some people that are just assholes. And those aren't the people that I would work with, regardless of how technically good they are, or regardless of how, yeah, or regardless of the opportunities that they could possibly bring, because it's just not fun working with those people. And so I think it's certainly important to not hire someone, especially like if you would not like to go spend, I don't know, six to 12 hours a day, every day for the next couple of years together. So I would say not going to work with people whom you are not a good fit. I think it's important on both sides of the aisle, right? Don't hire someone who's not a good culture fit. And there have certainly been multiple times where I'm like, man, I really should not have gone to take this job. I shouldn't have gone to go take this contract because it's going to be a bit of a grind. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to transition away from the, those individual skills. And I want to also ask a question that we voiced it upon Addison, right? So we're talking about technology adaption, but also technology innovation. And when we look in the forward, that might be machine learning, that might be artificial intelligence. For some people, that might be cloud and a bunch of other things. Whose responsibility is it to go drive that forward, Vlad? Is it the end user who's, hey, this is what I want, and I'm going to go spend, I don't know, $50 million to go try to figure out how to make this happen? Is it the OEMs developing the technology? Is it the systems integrators? Where do you think that responsibility either lies or that responsibility is going to be, or that ownership is going to become into the future.
0: I really like that question because it has certainly come up a lot in my conversations. And as I've worked for very large companies that have the budget, which is one of the co- the comments I had made, I think in the conversations that have the budget to investigate different technologies and how they fit into their infrastructure. But I guess to answer your question, I think that in most cases, the end users are not going to have the capability to RD a lot of this tech, right? So, putting aside the largest companies that are on the cutting or bleeding edge, I think that they will rely on the systems integration partner that will do that research and present to them the opportunities from the technical standpoint. Now, what I mean by that is so there's three players, right? So, there's the OEMs who create the technology and sort of Pioneer may be different tech that incorporates certain tools. You have the integrator that works with the OEM to understand what is available. And then they make, like I said, the presentation by knowing the customer, the end user, what is relevant to them. So they're almost like a curator of information between those two end parties. And I think that, like I said, they become the technical expert while the end user becomes the business case expert. So what happens in a typical dynamic is if the integrator presents new technology that they can now leverage that has been created by an OEM. And again, that could be on an array of different things. It could be like electrical equipment. It could be on the safety side. It could be on the mechanical side, pneumatics, whatever that may be, robotics. They understand the tech. They understand in general what the end user may want. The end user needs to understand really well the business case. And now, with the technical, the general technical understanding of what the integrator can bring, they should be able to make the case for upper management that this investment is going to make sense. So, for me, that relationship is the one that I see forming the most. And I think that's what we're going to continue seeing in the future. Now, are the integrators doing the best job at positioning themselves as? the confidant, or I guess the advisor, that is a whole separate conversation, but I really think that they're the ones who will drive the technology conversation and adoption for the end user versus the other way around.
1: Interesting. I guess from my perspective, I would put much more of the onus on the OEMs, right? I think that if they are going and developing these technologies, and it could be the big groups like the Siemens and the Rockwells of the world. And if they're going to go drive these, they've got to go give us reasonable use cases on how to go deploy them into the factory and probably go deploy some of them so that we can go see how it works. And then I think that once we have these use cases, it will be a collaboration between the three groups. But I think on the other side, we're going to see the Fortune 5000s, maybe the Fortune 10,000 going and hopefully investing a bunch of money at the corporate level to go figure out how we can go understand what the actual value and benefits are going to look like moving forward. And I think that without investment on both sides, it's going to be really difficult for systems integrators, especially with legacy businesses of, hey, I'm gonna go hire 500 people and we're gonna go bill them out at X number of dollars per hour and we're gonna go have 80% utilization rate and that's how we're all going to go ahead and make our money. Like in that instance, there is not like room in in the budget and anything else. There's not room in the budget for, for we're gonna go put 20 people to go figure out how artificial intelligence works. Oh, let's see. So Kevin, Kevin Holbrook. Kevin, I wish I remembered the number of your episode. We're really bad at that this week. I apologize, guys. But what Kevin is saying, if the OEMs bring in the systems integrators, do they do the work for the OEM or the actual customer? I think that is a very interesting question. And honestly, I think it really depends upon who is cutting the systems integrators the checks. And I almost in this technology conversation would like to put in another person, right? I'd almost like to put in another layer of people. I think someone has to be the technologist looking out for the end user, right? Like like very few systems integrators have the ability to go consult at the return on investment levels for projects that are going to go span five or 10 or 50 facilities as a pilot, right? Very few systems integrators have the ability to go have those conversations. And so if we need someone to come in to go have those conversations, to go say, hey, we need to go invest X number of millions of dollars. These are the use cases and this is the return on investment. It's not typically not going to be the person as part of the 10 person systems integration firm because they have very specific, very particular backgrounds when it when it comes to that. So from my perspective, I think that we're going to have another layer in there and we might call them solutions architects we might call them consultants, we might call them technological evangelists, we might call them a variety of things. But I think that as we go to look to drive this these technologies forward, there's going to be another person in that stack. Vlad, I know that I have you and I haven't necessarily had this conversation in the past, but I'd love to get your thoughts if you have immediate thoughts and feedback as to what the future of that looks like.
0: I guess a couple of comments, right? OEM versus systems integrator. I think that in in the best case scenario in my mind, and again, there's obviously nuances depending on how large the OEM is. I think that Mm -hmm. if they don't provide a integration service, right? So if they're not able to go and boots on the floor, install, if it's a machine, if it's their product, whatever that may be, it becomes extremely difficult for them to figure out what the end users actually need so that's why i guess my answer was that the system integrator drives the requirements because they have visibility of customers they drive the projects they understand what is needed from the oem and from the technology in order to solve business problems i also think that the oem is in some cases from what i've seen is biased towards their own product. So it becomes almost like a bubble where it's difficult for them to figure out where they stand. And like I said, obviously it depends on the size of the OEM, but I think that the integrators that work with different equipment and different verticals can provide a much better, and I want to say unbiased, although again, I know it is biased, but to a greater extent opinion, of what the end users need, what they want, and what they're willing to pay for. So that's why I really think that the systems integrators are the ones who drive a lot of these solutions instead of the OEM or the end user. But I guess to Kevin's point, I think that an OEM, again, obviously depends how the contract is brought in. But in my mind, an OEM that is reasonable and does not provide that service natively, right, so they don't have a systems integration arm that they go and they do the service, they should probably pass on that contract to a trusted systems integrator altogether, right? So who cuts the check I think is not as important, but I think that the trust and the relationship with that systems integrator is a lot more critical to that OEM than to just, let's call it, take a pay cut out of that out of that contract and manage it themselves. I just, I really think that the customer, they can make that reference to the customer. And as long as they agree to, let's say, install the OEM's hardware or software, it should be fine that the customer pays the actual, or they do the work for the customer versus working for the OEM that then does the work for the customer.
1: I would agree with that. I want to go bring in Ramoth's comment. He's saying who is responsible for the success or failure of an implementation, the SI or the end user or both. I guess I have many thoughts on this. I'll try to be as concise as we possibly can. I would say that to some extent it depends upon the contract, but most systems integration contracts like this are, we're going to go deliver X things or we are going to go spend X amount of time working on this. And if we don't get done, we will go ahead and continue in some additional contract. So I guess when you talk about success or failure, you see very few systems integration companies say, Hey, we failed this, right? Like it was a failed implementation. The technology might have been deployed correctly, but It was the wrong application of the technology right or the end user wasn't ready or operations wasn't ready or something like this so i guess my long story short is i think historically when you look at systems integrators there's generally a misalignment between the systems integrators if we need to go sell more time so that we can continue to keep our folks billable versus the oems who the end users who generally want the project to go work and succeed so my projection and i don't imagine we're going to go get the fortune five or ten thousand to go into this is that there will continue to be opportunities of hey if we can go deploy this technology successfully it's going to cost x number of dollars and we will continue to support this and through the support etc we will get some percentage of the additional gains i I think that is where i think that is a logical conclusion of especially small to medium-sized end users, the manufacturers of, we've got to go in this direction in order for all of us to be successful and remove some amount of that misalignment as it comes to that. Vlad, do you have thoughts on that or should we move on before we just spend the next two hours arguing? No,
0: look, I guess I have a much harder take on this. I really think that at the end of the day, the end user is responsible, ultimately not on the technical deliverables, but they're responsible for setting the right expectations they're I want to say owners of selecting the right systems integration partner and they are responsible for making sure that the project comes along at a reasonable timeline right again I've worked for both end users and systems integrators I think that the the split of responsibility is that the end user you need to set those expectations very clearly you need to manage the project scope You need to communicate extremely well what the process requirements are. If you fail on any one of those items, then the systems integrator is only going to be delivering on what has been communicated to them. So I just, in my at least opinion, am not of the thought that the system integrator is going to fail because they have not delivered themselves. And again, like there's nuances, there's technology, maybe misalignments. But if any of those things are not set in place well enough for the systems integrator, you're almost setting them up for failure and who's responsible for that failure. Where in my experience, it's probably going to fall on the end user. Although again, you can argue and me and you can argue, but I think in most of those projects, it's the end user.
1: Interesting. I will say in my opinion, if the technology doesn't work as described, it was a failure of the entirety of the process. And giving a giving the people building it on the technical side a free pass of saying you guys didn't do anything wrong is much too nice. It is the perspective of a systems integrator of we, we did what was asked, if you guys can't get it to work, that is on your side. But well if the technology didn't that work, this that's is a why... different
0: Dave. Like that's I feel like that's a different scenario because if the technology didn't work, that means you didn't vet your system or they sold you on a technology that was an R and D project versus something that is fully baked and proven somewhere else. You know what I mean? So it still falls on you as the ownership. You need to find a partner that is able to integrate something that works. And if the if it's not going to work, then you should have some risk baked into the contract, right? We understand that this is R&D and this has, let's say, a 10% chance or 50% chance, whatever that may be to work. So of course, you can bake that in. But I don't know how you would blame the systems integrator because the tech didn't work out.
1: We'll go ahead and move on from that, Vlad. All right,
0: um, all right, because
1: we do have we do have some other topics to we do have some other topics to to cover with this. But guys, super appreciate all the questions and comments about this, as you can probably all see. Vlad and I were both very excited to do a Integrators of the Future theme, because Vlad and I both have very strong feelings based upon our experience in systems integration. I wanna move a bit off of the craziest of technologies and go conclude on the conversation that we had with Jason just a couple of days ago, which was going from MES and machine learning and artificial intelligence down to the very regional, very open sharing of water, wastewater, and public works projects. So I thought it was really good. Really do hope that we didn't get Jason in too much trouble because we just continued to ask him questions of things that we wanted to know. And he continued to give us very truthful answers. So you guys, if you have ever wondered how water wastewater is different as an industry, then basically anything else you've ever worked in, please go ahead and skip back to episode 120 and go ahead and listen to that. What were your kind of main takeaways from our conversation with Jason?
0: I'll be honest with you, Dave. I think that the industry sounds, I want to say, interesting in general, because I'm curious about different processes, but I don't think it was sold in a very positive light for someone who might be looking for an opportunity. I think that There's been a lot of certainly mentions of not being, I want to say, on the cutting edge. There's been a lot of mentions of it's really difficult to build the relationships to maybe get into some of those plants or projects. And the last one is that there's not a whole lot of budget, both on, let's say, implementing new things, but also maintaining or maybe servicing some of that equipment. So I, I think that it's interesting to understand what goes on in those businesses and in that vertical but I'm not sure that it would be my top list item if I was let's call it graduating with an automation degree or background and looking for an opportunity what were your thoughts
1: but I feel like you have a really shitty perspective mostly because you missed all of the poop puns when you were talking about when you were talking about that. No. So I guess I thought it was super interesting. Jason and I worked together in a past life and I had spent probably many hours asking him similar questions in regards to the water wastewater industry. So it's not the industry that I spend very much time thinking about or working in for kind of many of the same items that Vlad had talked about. My my thought is I want to go do and push a bunch of technologies and typically public works don't have a ton of money in order to go through the process of kind of major technologies and upgrades. I guess from my perspective, th- there were a couple of main takeaways that I absolutely loved. One is the open sharing of information. And I feel like I asked Jason, like the, I, we played 20 questions and where I was asking him about the open sharing of information, because I think that's a major thing that all groups can go ahead and take away from what the water wastewater, from what water wastewater does, right? If some, Again, working with large corporate entities over the past half a dozen years, many of them have been, hey, we're gonna go through this process and we're gonna sell it to corporate. And we're like, yes, we finally sold it to corporate and we get to go build the thing. And then it's now we get to go sell it to all 27 other facilities, and it's basically an individual sales process one at a time because You have to go sell the use case. You have to go show, hey, it's working at this other plant. This is the way we're going to go do it. And many times it's almost like pulling teeth in order to get some of those conversations. I thought it was very interesting, the regionality and the open sharing of water, wastewater of, hey, if something works, if someone does a good job for my facility here, I'm going to go tell the guys two counties over and I'm going to basically go tell everyone, hey, I had a good experience with this person or this was the good, this was the bad. I would spend the money again, or I would not spend the money again. All of those other opportunities. So I think that is a huge opportunity for, yeah, I think that's a huge opportunity kind of for everyone when we go to look at that. And I think that there is, based upon our conversation with Jason, like there, there is an opportunity, a huge opportunity for disruption. And I say there's a huge opportunity for disruption because hey, we legacy have gone and used the same products and the same solutions. And maybe if we can find a different way to go stretch the budget and it may be as a service, it may be something else. We can go bring in newer technology. And if you have the industry experience, you can go ahead and deploy newer technology. And if you've got the bank loans or the cash on hand, you could go extend this for 10 years, 20 for 30 years of contracts, make five times what you would have made and actually go ahead and upgrade a bunch of other places. So I thought it was really interesting. I think that there are certainly things that different groups can learn from it. If I was going into systems integration, unless I knew someone who was very well connected into the water wastewater industry, it's probably not what I'm going to go break into, because it takes so much to go break in. But Jason did talk a lot about trade groups and the importance of trade groups, and I think that was another that, that was some great advice. I've got them listed here: ISA and AW and WEF. with Weftech, you listed all of those as really good opportunities to go see and meet folks. And I think that is great kind of pieces of that, that is great comments for everyone. If you are looking to go get into any industry, find local shows, find local groups, go meet people, you will go find opportunities, depending upon what that looks like.
0: Yeah, definitely. I liked his advice on that side. I think that it resonates not only for wastewater, but many other industries in manufacturing automation in general. I would say that the other thing that stood out to me, and that was a little bit surprising slash interesting slash maybe we need to bring him back to explain that application a little bit better, but they're pulling, I want to say an obscene amount of tags at some facilities. And he discussed it with people at a trade show. I'm just curious. In general, what kind of data could you be collecting from a wastewater facility and what kind of decisions they would make in a general sense in order to better that. And again, I don't know enough about the chemical process. I have a general understanding, but again, I think it would be really cool to see one of those applications, what it looks like. I don't think there's a an open source demo, but it, I, w- I was surprised by how much information can be gathered. And I think that it would be really cool to better understand what truly goes on in the facilities. And again, I'm not sure that someone will openly have those conversations and go through it, but I think there is a technical opportunity to maybe leverage some data and make the process better.
1: Absolutely. I would say that I think it would be interesting, and I don't know how we would do this, but I think it would be interesting. To compare different types of input and data and opportunities across a variety of different industries, don't know how we would do that on a single live show, but I think it would be an interesting series of conversations that that we would we could potentially go ahead and have. I can say on the water wastewater side that there there is inflow right. There are a bunch of chemical processes that one goes to remove all of the bad, crappy stuff from the clean water. And so I would imagine that there are a number of different kind of segments in, in pH and, and all of these other sensors that you have along the way that you're testing it to confirm that it is good, clean water. And then beyond that, there is all of those solids and you've got to go do something with solids and the other waste. And so I would imagine that th- there are a bunch of processes. And then beyond that, I think lots of local and regional facilities have got lift stations and pump stations and all of these other things to make sure that we can continue to bring it in so i thought that it was interesting going and talking from as small as hey we're a really small local municipality all the way up to where this huge facility and i've gone i've worked with a couple of very large facilities in different cities that, that I've lived and worked in the past. And man, some of those facilities get very large, but I would like to go translate to translate this. I want to talk about, so we've talked about systems integration firms, right? We've talked about their, they all start as small because that's how the industry is. At some point they grow into larger systems integration firms and at some point we've got to go sell and market ourselves. So I want to ask you what you think marketing opportunities look like for integrators in the future. Besides coming and talking on this podcast and besides going and putting their banners all over solasplc.com, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on some good opportunities for those integrators in the future?
0: Sure. And I guess let's, let me try and tackle this from a couple of angles. I think that they ultimately need to understand who they're marketing towards, right? And I think that there's different groups. There's ultimately the decision maker. Let's call that an engineering manager or let's say an operational manager that is looking for new technology, or there's a pain point in the process that he wants to investigate with the systems integration partner. And then there's also the engineers and the techs and the maintenance crew that is probably going to be left with either some portion of the design, some portion of also integrating on the plant side, but also maintaining and the long-term perspective of whatever the system integrator has put in. And I think that those two channels are extremely different. And what I mean by that is on the buyer side, the metrics that are going to matter most is how does this solve a business problem and what's the ROI on that solution, right? So I think that on that side, what is a little bit more important is being able to make a business case or maybe present more of an information that is a case study approach. So you need to position your marketing efforts in a sense that you understand the industry, you understand their pain points, and you understand what a potential solution looks like. And I guess to be specific, what channels does that maybe imply? Obviously, I think LinkedIn is a professional network. So if you start showcasing those case studies or bits of those case studies, I think you can get the end users interested in your SI type of work. Now, on the other side, you also have the people who are either, like I said, designing a little bit with you, are maintaining that equipment, are supporting the effort on the technical side. And I think that the marketing opportunities are very different because I think you need the engineers and the techs like buy-in in many instances of the technology in addition to the business case being good. So you're trying to sell them on that technology will work with what you currently have. It's going to be easy to learn, right? So that's why we're seeing a lot of I want to say learning curve reduction on the robotics side that anyone can take out the teaching pen and then be able to relocate that. And again, that's a whole other conversation, how effective that is. But what I'm trying to say is that the marketing efforts and the sales efforts for a systems integrator on that side should be educating on how easy the technology is to work with, how easy the technology is to modify, because ultimately we all know changes will happen and will be requested, whether it is at the plant or by the technical team. And ultimately what do the channels look like where I think, I think they're a little bit different. I think that education, like I said, is extremely important in the form of videos, in form of articles, whatever that's posted on your website, on LinkedIn, very important for engineers. I think that we all spend a lot of time reading data sheets. And so having something that is a little bit more concrete that we can see and experience is key. I will not plug in the exact names, but I think a couple of companies provide a way for you to get a trial software in a very, I want to say like elegant manner that makes it easy to to the engineers to try out, learn, and then... Proposed to their managers. So does that, Dave, before I continue on that same path, does that answer the question? So I really see like both sides of the story and it's important to craft the message for each one.
1: Yeah, I thought that was good. I think I'd like to kind of hammer down on a couple of those points in particular, Vlad. Sure. I think one of your early points, what was on the education side? I guess from my experience, If you are going and doing something interesting, if you're going to do something new, or if you're trying to go sell something that is not, we'll just say kind of like PLC and HMI services that every just about every facility has, there needs to be some amount of educational marketing around that. And in my experience, going and building the educational content is much more successful than just going and slapping up, hey, this is who we are, this is what we do, if you need HMI services and you're in this area, call us. I find that most of the time, there are certainly certainly some people who need those services, but I find that most of the time that becomes a, we're just going blind, right? We are going blind. Hey, this is another ad in the yellow pages, but they've posted it on LinkedIn and Instagram and all of these other places. So I would say in my experience, that's not the best way to go ahead and market yourself. On the educational side, absolutely yes to Jason's earlier points. To reiterate, going and seeing and meeting people live and in person, be it trade shows, be it other networking events, kind of things like that, those are exceptionally good. And then beyond that, kind of word of mouth, right? If someone is, if someone calls and says, hey, Vlad, do you know a person who you go do X service and and I've done a good job? Vlad's gonna be like, yeah, go talk to Dave. He's done a good job for me. If you guys have similar use cases, absolutely go talk to him. On my side, you go into project and we're like, hey, Vlad, I think that we're all generally happy, very happy with how this project ended. Do you know anyone else in the area within your network of CFOs or COOs or anything like that who may need a similar service? Can you provide an introduction? Those warm to medium introductions are absolutely always the best way to go have conversations. Those are the big opportunities that I find in the selling and marketing opportunities. I have found very few people who are very much into the high pressure, hey, if you need this, we are the people that you want to come talk to, all sort of people. But educational, going and posting case studies, going and doing things like that, absolutely in important. I want to go and I I know that we're getting close to time for a bunch of people. We've got so many good questions here in the comments. Thank you to everyone. My LinkedIn typing is broken. I literally cannot respond to any of you live, despite the fact that I've tried to for a bunch of times, but I want to talk about end user selection or I'm sorry. Yeah. End user selecting integrators. Vlad, from your perspective, because I know you've been on this as the end user a number of times, how do you go, I guess, Maybe how in the past have you gone about selecting integrators and given everything that you've known in the 10-ish years since you were last an end user, how would you go about selecting an end user today?
0: Sure. And I think I've alluded to that process a little bit earlier, but ultimately I think that it's just like an interview, right? So somebody from the systems yep. integrator is going to come in and probably explain what their capabilities are, who would be working on a project. Let's say if you choose them, it's not, let's say if they're small then it's probably going to be the person who executes the project. If they're large, it's not always going to be the same person doing the work than the one you're speaking to. So you need to ask the same questions as you would ask in an interview. What kind of other projects have you done? What have you worked on? What is your skill set? What are you comfortable doing? So just get a first understanding of the systems integrator. Then the first phase, really for me, like I said, it's almost taking a flyer on seeing them on a smaller project and how they perform and just to see if the expectations are similar. Right. So I'll give you like one example as I've once again described a little bit, but during a commissioning project, a lot of times you need multiple parties. So the OEM is either going to do some kind of a VAT, FAT with you, they're probably going to send a couple of people to integrate that machinery. And you're going to have either like a local systems integrator or somebody helping out with those efforts, whether internal or external. I think like for me, the first phase is usually, like I said, testing out or trialing the systems integrator and just seeing how they work, what the feedback is. Again, if I'm in an engineering management position, then I'm probably not going to be hands on with the representative or the engineer from the SI. So I would probably get the feedback from my team of what it looked like. Are they happy with the level of service that has been provided? I would probably also throw in some curveballs, And what I mean by that is let's say if there's an increased need in figuring something out over the weekend, what is the response? Can they staff that if I'm looking to run projects in manufacturing 24 seven, if I'm looking for support, is that a An immediate yes from their side or is it a very hesitant hey we can only accommodate that if you provide a contract for three months from now so i'm just trying to understand maybe what their commitment lies in terms of working with me if i'm satisfied in that first phase i think that's what when they are officially brought on board and you can start building that long-term relationship right you want to include them in the projects you want to understand or I guess you have an understanding that there is a learning curve for the systems integrator as well. And the better, as I've discussed, the better they understand the process, They better they, the better they understand what kind of projects you're projecting, let's say in the next ideally year, but maybe more, right? Three years, the better they can position themselves to help you, with the technology, the services, so on and so forth. So I think it's just a couple of phases, but very critical to, to find the right fit. And as I always mention to even my customers, when I've talked to them afterwards, it's difficult to get that fit without doing a smaller project before diving into something that has a lot more consequences.
1: I would agree with that. Trialing out on something that maybe isn't insignificant, but is inexpensive. is always a good way to go start to build those relationships. And I would say much of my success of going and working with new clients and going and building those relationships is knowing people that that know them, knowing people that that do work within those organizations. It, It is really hard to go knock on the door of a manufacturing company and say, Hey, my name is Vlad. Do you guys need help? Like I do X, Y and Z things. Can I help you? Do you have PLC problems? So first the guard is just gonna look at you like you're absolutely insane. And you're probably not gonna get much further than that. But, but beyond that is it's really difficult unless they have that. If someone has the immediate need of the service that you're offering, then it may be a yes. But the vast majority of the time is, you need to go find a way to to get an introduction to those people so that you can go have that conversation, right? People want to know your background, they want to know your skill set. but like most of them want to know, how do you know us? Like, how do we know you? Who do we know that I can go call to make sure that you're more than just a living, breathing human being, that you can go deliver the things that you want to do. And in my experience, you either get to the end of that first opportunity and then there are a ton more opportunities or you get to the end of that first opportunity, you are like, hey, guys, this was fun. Good luck with whomever else you're going to go find to bring on the next opportunity. Because maybe there wasn't the best alignment. Maybe it wasn't nearly as fun as, as possible.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. I would like to, I guess, wrap us up because it has been an hour and 20 minutes. I think that there's certainly many other things that all of us would like to get done before the weekend. Dave, that being said, I do want to thank the sponsor for this month. And that is Opto 22. You can see two of their PLCs right here in the middle of your screen to my left, which is the Groove Epic and the Rio. I was going to make the comment on the marketing side. I think that there's almost like a missed opportunity. And we've discussed this in an unrelated conversation. But I think there's really cool tech in many of these devices that I think the OEMs don't do enough justice. That is extremely interesting to engineers right? And so I think that just being transparent would be I guess that's my desire. I think that the OEMs have an opportunity to showcase a lot of their technology to engineers that would make them not only appreciate the tech, but also be more aware of what is possible with many of those tools. And again, that includes, I think, manufacturers of different brands, not just Opto, but I just wanted to Get that point out because i think marketing is a good question and we had that re come up from cruno in the chat and of course i understand that it's difficult to find the proper kpis and investments in educational videos but in any case dave any thoughts any ideas on the integrators of the future
1: I think that the only certainty that we have for integration for five to 10 years from now is it will not be the same today, but it will be exciting. And you guys continue to follow along as we're having these conversations. I am at, just like last year, we had integration conversations. I imagine integration conversations will continue into the future. A couple of housekeeping items on my side before we wrap up. Happy Canada Day to Vlad and all of the Canadian listeners. That is I suppose technically tomorrow but observed today so thank you to all the Canadians coming and watching us live it is always fun coming to your coming to your ears happy 4th of July to, to everyone in the US as a p- bit of housekeeping we are off next week which is july 5th but we will be back july 12th talking about the standardization of automation for a really interesting next theme as we are coming up and with that again i would like to go thank everyone for coming to hang out with us we've had a ton of folks on the linkedin chat the entirety of the show so thank you guys for that If you have not liked and subscribed, please go do the subscribe. Tons of you guys have done the liking and the commenting thing already. So please can subscribe. If you have somehow not managed to follow Vlad and myself, please follow us. Please follow the Manufacturing Hub Network on LinkedIn, where you'll get all of the clips and all of the interesting items that we've got coming out. Derek, you also have a great weekend. And then if you guys are listening on podcast form, if you guys are listening on podcast form, Please hit the follow button. Go ahead and download the new episodes, which come out on Thursday. And please go through the process of please go through the process of writing us five stars everywhere you can go. Yes, Jay, Vlad is Canadian, sorta. But that is a whole other show in and of itself. Is how does Vlad currently live in Canada and why isn't he more excited about celebrating Canada today?
0: I will make another comment, Dave, before we finalize and close off this episode it looks like even more comments on linkedin have been posted for whatever reason the software that we're using to bring this in did not publish elite ali g was in the comments also talking about SCADA systems and integrators and even adopting chat gpt so i certainly want to apologize it looks like our software did not bring in all the comments I don't even see that. for some selective yes. reason That being said, if you guys have any other questions, if you have any thoughts, feel free to send them our way, primarily on LinkedIn. Appreciate you tuning in. Thank you so much to the sponsor, Opto22. And I think that pretty much concludes all the episodes. Dave, final comment is left on you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. And if you guys haven't been watching, go check out our friends at the Automation Ladies with Allie and Nikki and Courtney. But we'll see everyone in a couple of weeks. Until then. Goodbye well,